Welcome to Better Than Nothing. What you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. Today I want to talk with an old friend who is just a delight to listen to. If you heard him on KFEQ radio through the many years or work with him through the Farm Broadcaster Organization, you'll know his, uh, his smarts are real, but his love is farming. Gene Miller from St. Joe, Missouri, just confirmed that, and uh, just finished harvest this fall. Gene, how are you doing? Well, we're just doing uh, awesomely fantastic. Uh, We hope to wrap up our harvest totally by 4 o'clock this afternoon. I don't want to predict that because you never know what's going to happen, but uh, we could not have had a better fall uh, for harvest season. I don't ever remember having four or five weeks in a row. So we started about the 14th of September, and here we are going to finish up on the, what, 15th of October? Or, I mean, yeah, October. That's right. Amazing. You know, you complained to me many times about it being dry. Well, yep. you know, right now you're not complaining about it being dry, are you? Well, it's really dry, Ken. I mean, we used, I think, every drop of soil moisture reserve that we had built up last fall and early spring because we really didn't get much precipitation all summer long had a couple of rains uh just just kind of got timely little rains along you know three tenths seven tenths never had any real what you call a three-day soaker uh so we we just kind of kind of lipped from one shower to the next but it worked out uh this year but uh we have no soil moisture reserve uh, going into this winter, so it's it's a different ballgame. Tell them folks where you are, kind of what kind of soil, how close to a river, things like that, so they'll get a okay. the land well, your farm. Okay, our farm is in DeKalb County, Missouri, and it's about 25 miles east of St. Joe, and uh, we're in a uh, rolling hills uh, topography, uh, highly variable soil types, everything from yellow clay that washed off about 50 years ago uh, to, you know, some decent loam soils. Uh, so it's highly variable, but we've uh, we've learned to manage with that. We've got a lot of terrace structures to control excessive runoff, and this year they worked. Even though we had one heavy rain, it, it, it did not top any of our terraces. And so we got tile atlas uh, on the terraces, not too many grass waterways. And it's uh, it's it, it's not a tough uh, geography. Uh, it's less than one percent, two percent slope most ever place. Uh, not any steep ground for sure. Not like up in very northwest corner of Missouri where there's some really steep hills. But it's not flat country. It's not river bottom. We do not have any creek bottoms or anything like that in any of our uh, farming operations. So it's it's a rolling uh, landscape. But you don't have any hell land, do you? No, no. Uh, this uh, this right around St. Joe is a low soil, and it goes all the way up through uh, northwest uh, corner of the state, right along the Missouri River, and that soil is, I think, the same twenty feet down. Uh, but uh, you get east of uh, town about fifteen miles, and and the glacier did a different number out there. <laughs> so we just. Uh, we just have a, a more of a glacial uh, retreat back in the Ice Age retreated and left us with a variable soil out in our part of the country. 
Well, let's talk about your corn soybeans this year, but primarily corn. Um, you had, uh, as I understand, your best yields ever on corn. Not to divulge them, but we'll just say you were blessed. Yes. Anybody doesn't want you to tell exactly what they're using. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. This uh, was a, a best corn yield overall uh, that we've ever had on our farm. I mean, we've had some 200-plus yields in a spot or two in a field or two in the past. I remember 2014 was an excellent year, and uh, 2017 was an excellent year. And then we've had the 2012s where it was really poor, uh, where it made 55 bushel. Um, but this year, it just uh, seemed like to be pretty consistent. Uh, our worst yield this year would have been our best yield five years ago. And so we credit that to genetic enhancement. Uh, certainly, there's been an improvement on that, but you know, that comes at a cost. I mean, I understand that our seed is going to cost about $110 an acre next year uh, to plant corn. And the soil conditions last spring were key, I think, to getting this good year of corn yields because the soil condition last spring when we planted in April, I think April 16, 17, 18, 19, uh, were just absolutely perfect, very mellow, not the usual gummy, wet, stuff that we sometimes have to deal with. And so the planter did a fantastic job of spacing the seed, got a uniform stand of 31,000, and that's a high population for here. Now, it's not high for parts of Iowa, Illinois, or, you know, the deep soil, black soil areas, but in this area, when you start pushing over 30, uh, it, it, it becomes a, a drought stress issue here where you really, you're paying the price for getting too heavy a population. But this year, perfect stand, perfect germination, all came up, even weed control was great. And one thing that we have tried to evolve into is a split rate nitrogen program where you're not putting it all on in one shot. Uh, we put anhydrous on last fall, and it ran about 125 pounds of actual N. Then we come back this spring at planting and incorporated about 30 pounds of N with our uh, pre-emerge herbicide. And then come back and top dressed at just about the end of June uh, where the corn was just about ready to tassel. It was getting you know, well up over shoulder high. And we put on another 40 pounds of N over the top. Part of what we did, uh, neighbor had a wide drop system on a sprayer that could dribble the uh, liquid in right along the rows. And we, we wanted to try that out. And then when some ground that was terraced and kind of hard to get around with a with a big old sprayer like that and keep it on the row, uh, we spread dried nitrogen over the top. But then we caught a nice inch rain right after that. So it activated everything. And, and I think that really made the difference because we were over in another neighbor's field uh, that put on just a pre-plant uh, application of nitrogen, and his yields were running 50 bushel less. So it, it does make a difference, I think, in trying to feed the crop along instead of trying to put it all in one chunk and fertilize is so expensive that you, you just got to measure it out. Gene Millard is my guest. Gene is a uh, longtime uh, radio broadcaster and manager of KFEQ Radio, but... He's always farmed. He's from that area in St. Joe, and uh, 
continues to do so. But Gene, you're a 44 model, and you're a big. But what about the labor side of your farm? Who's helping you? We are strictly a family operation. I, I'm a 41 model, and my youngest son is a 1970 model, and so he's there full time and uh, really carries a heavy load and uh, has to do all the fix-it routine. And uh, then my oldest son, who is uh, has an opportunity to have a little flex time, and he comes here uh, each fall uh, for about four or five weeks and helps us through the harvest season with truck driving and grain cart driving and all of that kind of good stuff. And I kind of perform the shuttle service and combine operator uh, because my old bones don't let me climb up and down too far or too fast. So uh, when I get in one place, I want to stay there for a while. But if we're a family, yet there's no uh, outside labor hired. Uh, that would be virtually impossible. Some of the larger operations here in our area that have five, six, seven, eight uh, hired uh, employees to run trucks, and some are using uh, you know labor that comes in from uh, South Africa, uh, not Hispanic, but South Africans. That uh, can speak English, and uh, and are trained to operate farm equipment, and uh, they have to provide them housing and and you know meals and you name it. And so there's a lot of regs on that issue, which I'm not totally familiar with at all. But it has to do with the federal laws on that and getting your, the right kind of a card. So that seems like a complication that just would be very difficult uh, to handle unless you're up to size and scale of 10 or 20,000 acres that we just are not going to get to that point because uh, we're we're a family operation running about 1,500 acres. Gene, there are some things that you can't control, and I wonder your reaction uh, to fertilizer costs as you have paid them this last year and you see paying them in the year ahead. Uh I know you got good prices for this corn, I would say $6 plus, but um, are you going to eat it all up? with the? Uh, we're going to eat up a lot of it. Uh, we're, we've already got our DMK, phosphate and flatash, uh, either applied or ordered, and uh, so we'll have it, have it put on right now because the soil conditions are perfect to run a truck uh, and not do any compaction or anything. But it costs uh, 27% more than last year. And last year, it had already taken a bump. So I don't want to go back to what it cost two years ago because it would be a gigantic increase. Nitrogen is up 300%, uh, you know, $1,500 a ton for anhydrous last fall. And and I haven't heard any good quotes this year other than it's still high as a tree. And so but, it's going to take those prices to make it work. You pointed out that nitrogen uh, placement, uh, nitrogen uh, getting into the plant at the right time was a key. No matter what it costs, it appears to me you're still going to have to have almost as much nitrogen as you put on right now to say even with the world. Well, exactly. I mean, if you if you reduce your rate, now one thing you can reduce a little bit temporarily is uh, perhaps a phosphate or potash application, 
because there's a certain amount of residue carried over because we're we're in a pretty much a no-till or very minimal till operation, so you're returning a lot of organic matter uh, to the soil profile that eventually will break down. Uh, and so you can maybe skimp a little bit uh, on the P and K, but uh, there's just not a way of, of skimping on the nitrogen. Do you have uh, concerns, and you're not politically neutral, I know that, uh, of the politics that have gone on to keep some of these night these uh, fertilizer uh, producers from getting their product into the United States without a duty. You know, there's a company in Morocco, I've run a couple of stories with them just because of the interest of it, that they don't have a dog in this fight, but yet the U.S. companies and Canadian companies have uh, kept them in a tariff situation where they're they're not competitive selling the product in the U.S., but they bring it all the way up to Mississippi and sell it in Canada. Yeah, crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> Absolutely insanity. Uh, you know, and you, when you restrict uh, by environmental law or, or, or pressures uh, to do any mining in this country, uh, you have a very limited uh, area that you can source uh, the necessary ingredients if you're going to continue to feed this globe it's going to take some plant nutrient to feed people's nutrition and it's got to come in and it's it's absolutely uh, uh false to have these kind of trade barriers that inhibit uh, producers from acquiring uh the, the best source for the product gene let's swing back to your herbicide because a lot of people are having trouble keeping out some of these resistant weeds. You said you had good control this year. Is there anything that you did this year or long-term that helped you to accomplish that? On corn, uh, we used to think we could get by with one application of herbicide at planting time and carry through all the way to harvest and keep a clean field. That just is not feasible anymore with the restrictions uh, on rate uh, of, of chemical that you can apply at, at any one time or for the season, atrazine being of note there in corn. That's the most important corn herbicide we have on the market. And, of course, it's under threat again by in you know, EPA's insanity, in my opinion. But at any rate, uh, we went through a split rate again on herbicides. So you use a different mode of action on that second pass. And that kills anything that, and controls anything that has emerged in that tender stage up to, you know, corn that's up there over knee high. And from then on, Mother Nature and canopy does a great job of controlling weeds. If you have a skip in the field around a terrace riser where you didn't get coverage, you see it. Uh, otherwise, it's clean. Do you put a fungicide on in the summer? Uh, to help that continue to grow? We, this year we did apply some fungicide on about a third of our acreage. And the jury is still out whether it really paid or not. Uh, my hunch is at this point, since I've rode the combine most of the time while watching the monitors, I don't think it paid uh, this year. But again, climatic conditions were not really you know, the type that would 
that would cause a lot of infestation of fungal diseases. And the genetics have gotten so much better uh, that you, if you pick a variety that is adapted to your area that has resistance to some of these fungal diseases, uh, they will tolerate a tremendous amount of stress. But uh, we did put it on about a third, but as I've been told before, a third of the time it works, a third of the time it breaks even, a third of the time you lose your money. So that that's kind of our experience. I know other people that other geographies of different climatic conditions will have a totally different experience. Well, some of these high-yield growers say that holding the plant green longer uh, makes a difference in how much it packs on in the latter stages of the uh, corn maturity. And um, I don't know how you measure that, but did you find that the plants that you sprayed with fungicide stayed green longer than the others? Well, uh, maybe a little bit, but uh, we we applied it on what we thought were our highest yielding potential fields of uh, of a little longer maturity hybrid. and. Then it was so dry, we had no rain in August. We had no rain hardly the first half of September. So that was the condition that you'd want that fungicide to do its thing and keep the plant green if you have plenty of moisture. This year, we just didn't have any moisture. It just yeah. didn't happen. I mean, there was less than an inch of rain in six weeks. So, so maybe you Maybe you ought to move out to western Nebraska and grow corn then, huh? <laughs> well, you wouldn't need a fungicide as bad, let me put it that way, I don't think, out in western Nebraska. But on the other hand, they, they're irrigating it. They're they're making rain go down, you know, just by pumping it out of the ground. So yeah. they will have the humidity, too. Uh, if folks remember the podcast we did um, early on, it was on early machinery and the evolution of machinery through the 20th century. A while back, I did another podcast with Russ Green, who was in management with IH and Kubota and uh, a couple of other companies in his career. Fascinating guy, and he and I both gave a little homage to you. But uh, what are you running for a combine now, and what do you think of the progress in that machine being able to do a good job for you? Well, i tell you what, his interview was very fascinating, and I found it intriguing. We are currently running a Case IH, uh, what they call flagship machine, a 7240 Case IH rotary combine. It's a 2017 model. It's not the very latest one, but it's fairly current. Uh, it doesn't have as much automation in it as the new models. But the rotary concept has been extremely successful for us. Our grain quality that we put in the tank has been outstanding, and the uh, amount of field loss is just minimal. Uh, it's just, uh, you set it right, and, and it has enough cleaning capacity that it doesn't make any difference whether you're shelling 120 bushel corn or 220 bushel corn. Uh, it keeps it in the machine, puts it in the tank, and, and does a great job. Uh, so that has been a tremendous asset for us and and I think most everybody out there has gone with some kind of a rotary concept rather than the old cylinder uh, in the in the threshing part but the other enhancements and uh, we were as we've convinced before and when we started out combining in the mid 50s at an old Masahiro 60 with uh, no cab you sat up there on the steering wheel right above the header and let the dust boil on you 
And now the uh, the machine we're running now has uh, got a nice airtight cab, and it has auto guide, an auto steering system, where even in the worst conditions as it was yesterday, we were running soybeans that are testing 9% moisture, very, very dusty. The wind was gailing 35 miles an hour out of the west, and we were running on east and west terrain. Mm. So that meant that going west, it was wonderful. And going east, you could not see the cutter bar. So that auto guide kept me perfectly aligned with where I needed to be to fulfill that 30-foot header. <laughs> so it took all the strain and the work out of it. And uh, that really facilitated it work. Even for this old guy, I ran and, and finished the field at 7 o'clock last night just as the sun went down. And I can guarantee you that in the old days, we would we'd have been tuckered out long before that. There, remarkably, was an actual social element against farmers putting a cab on their tractors. Oh, yeah. Uh, We were made fun of. I find that absolutely (laughs) hilarious today. But farmers should have a a cast iron seat and should be out there uh, suffering in the elements uh, if they're farmed because that's their station in life. Is Is that too simple? (laughs) <laughs> well, that kind of sums it up a little bit, because I know at first, I mean, what do you mean you got an air-conditioned cab? Well, I guarantee you put a glass box around you out there in, in a sunny 80-degree day, it, you'll think it's, it needs a little air. <laughs> uh, well, it was a, it's a changing time, evolving fast, and this brings me to another question, a Russ Green question as well that I ask him. What about going fully automated on machines? They're already driving themselves if you're sitting there. What do you think of you sitting in the pickup and watching them? I have I got too many birthdays, I guess, to think that that is feasible uh, for us. In some specific conditions, in the right kind of topography, uh, it may work for a while. Uh, but there are so many variable field conditions out there that I guarantee you that automation system will not see. It will not see that piece of junk that blew in the field from some tornado last year. It will not see the ravine that is pending that uh, came after that five-inch rain. Uh, And so you're going to tear up a lot of stuff. And, you know, our auto grind is is great, but you still have to nudge it once in a while unless you want to, you know, get a... uh, RTK system. We're using WAS in our satellite, but it, it it's it's probably got to have an application, and it may work great in a nice flat field someplace with no obstructions. But we have to work around a lot of things in our part of the country. Okay, another question as we wrap up here, and I, Gene, totally enjoy visiting with you because I know the depth of your your knowledge and your commitment. My uh, father-in-law from Western Oklahoma farmed wheat for over 40 years, and uh, it came a time in the uh, 1990s that he had the highest yield he ever did. He had the highest price he'd ever had, and at the end of the year, I said, well, Delmer, you've done everything you said you wanted to do. Why don't you quit? And he looked at me like, you're crazy. I'm yep. never 
quit. My job is to complain about what didn't go right. And if I have a year like this, it's almost like I just need to dismiss it and get ready for next year. There is no hope for the satisfied man. <laughs> I'm going to write that down. There is no hope for the satisfied man. Yep, that's right. If you can't believe that you can't improve, then there's there's got to be another job out there for you somewhere. It won't be in farming. Well stated. Thank you, Gene. It's a delight to talk to you. I hope you have a good uh, rest of the fall and winter. I'll see you in Kansas City at the Farm Broadcaster Convention next month. Look forward to it, Ken. Next month we'll be there. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send an email to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. As I now turn 73 years old, I've decided to have two kinds of days, good ones and great ones. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.